Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Let's read together from Romans 8, 22 to 23. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And so Romans 8 pictures both a conception and birth in progress in which the Holy Spirit, all of creation, the whole creation groans, humanity, they all share in the groanings of travail which culminate in the incorporation of the children of God, that they cry out, Abba, Father, they're part of the divine family. There's also a conception in process, in the penetrating and indwelling work of the Spirit, bringing forth the fruit of new birth. And readers, or we, are simultaneously being conceived or brought to birth and conceiving. That is, that we're realizing this. We're part of the process. And the two conceptions are interwoven as incorporation into the divine order is inclusive of a human realization. That is, the transformation of our minds, the maturity in the spirit, or as Romans 8 describes it, there is a dynamic of prayer in which those praying do not know rightly how to pray. That is, they can't formulate, articulate their requests, but the spirit intercedes in this communion, this communication, this conception so that the Spirit is engendering them into the divine intercommunication. And I think that's the picture here of birth. And so the imagery is of the Spirit interpenetrating, indwelling, coalescing, incorporating. In this relationship, there's an empathizing so as to bring about the full love relationship, a fullness of love. And this binding together in the spirit of love, as Paul will describe it at the end of the chapter, is unbreakable. That is, nothing can divide us from this love of God in which all created and uncreated things converge. Now, we know God is beyond gender, but the imagery here in Romans 8 privileges the feminine-like role of the spirit, that is the imagery of childbirth, conception, first fruits, the incorporating, and even the fatherhood of God, or the Abba relationship, enabled through the Son, is accessed and completed through the Spirit. So there's a kind of privileging of the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. And this then, chapter 8, stands in contrast with the masculine, commanding, principled, punishing, alienating depiction of the law in chapter 7. 
you know, verses 7 to 25. And the implicit question of chapter 7, it's really answered here in chapter 8, concerns the role of the law in perceiving God. Where God is known through the law, it seems like he's separate, he's dangerous, he dictates, he prohibits, he prescribes, he inscribes on stone, and there's no sharing or incorporation. And so his theophanies, you know, when he appears in the Old Testament, it's almost repellent. You can't look at him such that Moses has to hide his face and the people are fearful. And then Moses requests that he might see God and he's put in the cleft of the rock and the glory of God passes by and of course the only thing Moses sees is the trace of him having passed. And then he disappears behind that impenetrable veil of the Old Testament of the temple that is actually representative that he, there's an absence of God. He leaves nothing for the senses. And in chapter 7, everything proves ungraspable. The good or right action, Paul can't get a hold of it. The enactment of the will, I can't do it. The understanding, he says, what I'm doing, I can't understand what I'm doing. And even the principle of the law, he knows it's there, but it seems like he can't quite grasp it. Desire or covening, it certainly concerns the senses, and that's key in chapter 7. But the only object of desire that presents itself is the law. And in verse 23 of chapter 7, he says, I see this law, or at least its effects in the body. But even here, it's not really an object of sight or any positive object for the senses. It's felt only in its antagonism. That is, the law of my mind and the law of my body are in a kind of antagonistic relationship. And so the depiction of seven is of an ego, an I, who would reappropriate himself through the law, and yet the law divides him. That's the very, the medium is what's killing him. And so where chapter 8 depicts an incorporating unity of all creation into the life of God, Chapter 7 lacks any space other than the law, and the law acts only as a point of division. And so the only portion of the created order, you know, in 7, everything appears in 8, but in 7 there's the body. But even this body is written over with the law that makes it inaccessible. I think we need to look at chapter 7. There's kind of this contraction, this inaccessibility. Where 8 is infinitely expansive and incorporative, 7 describes the opposite movement of reduction, restriction, discommunion, uncommunication. Nothing is conveyed in 7. Nothing is grasped. And nothing is seen. And maybe in chapter 7 the key verse is verse 10. And there in verse 10, the expectation was that the law would produce life. But this proved to be the point of deception, the entry point of deception, because it killed me. I thought it would give me life, and it killed me. And of course, the reference here may well be to Genesis 3. The deception of sin was, oh, 
partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you'll live. You'll be like God. It will produce life. And of course this lie would displace God. Now there was a prohibition, you know, don't eat of the tree. But of course the prohibition wasn't life-giving per se. The prohibition just pointed to the tree of life. And the tree of life represented the presence of God. And God is the source of life. And the reason I'm going into this is because Paul pictures Jews and Gentiles. They're all the same type of person. The Jewish type and the Gentile type, they're all summed up in the person of Adam. The Jewish encounter with the Decalogue falls under Adam's encounter with the prohibition in Genesis. And so Judah's sin, the Jews attempted to establish, Paul says this in chapter 10, verse 3, they attempted to establish their own righteousness through the law, and they failed to combine it with faith. And Paul's argument throughout the letter is that law is not an end in itself. At its origin is faith, the faith of Abraham. And at its end is the fulfillment in Christ, the faith of Christ. And so law alone, apart from faith, it is void. It nullifies the promise. Remember all that void, all that nullifying in chapter 7, that's an effect of the law. And so the work of sin is to skew the perception of the promise of life in the law. It's not a problem with the law. It's a problem of orientation. You remove the necessity of God and leave only the reality of the law. And so the Mosaic law, like the prohibition in the garden, it may have been a pointer or a guide. You know, what is it pointing to? It's pointing to life. But to imagine that it contains life in and of itself is to confuse the law with God. This is a kind of masculine understanding. At least that's the way it's presented. That is, the law reduces life to a singular principle. If we can grasp it or obtain it, all of reality enfolds into this singularity. And this is sin, to think this. And this mistake in Babel and Abraham is gendered masculine. Now, masculine and feminine here are, of course, metaphors. But in the story of Abraham, he is turned away from Babel. You know, the Tower of Babel. They're storming the heavens through their fine tower with their new engineering capability that in and through their own power, they will achieve heaven. They will get God. And of course, Abraham imagined that he, through his own procreative powers, could have life. See the mistake? And the lesson of faith is there's not life within yourself, there's not life in the law, but life comes from God, that God will give you a son. Where the Babylites would grab life, Abraham is taught the lesson of faith, God gives you life. And of course his son represents that. Circumcision, I believe, marks the spot of the accepted incompleteness, the dependence on God. It's kind of castration cut short. 
It exposes the lie, you know. Oh, you won't die. You have life within yourself. And I think it might otherwise have been repressed. And so the function of the law and circumcision was to open the reality of death and mortality and to point to God as the source of life. The law stood against idolatry, certainly. But what is idolatry? Idolatry really is like what the Babylites were doing. That they would create their own life and they would displace God. The typical idol, by the way, and this is still obvious in Japan, every idol, it's a little phallic symbol. We have them on the street corners everywhere in Japan. They're little ball-headed bodhisattvas, but actually (laughs) it goes back to a particular symbol. And this was typical, and it was typical in the Old Testament. Now again, the problem is not maleness or procreation, but it is to imagine that this alone produces life. And in turn to imagine, you know, what the Jews are going to do, they're going to repeat the mistake. They're going to imagine, oh, it's circumcision, or it's the law. If I keep this law, I have life. And it's to make the law into an idol. It is to miss the very point of circumcision, which is to say, no, life is in God. And the mark means life, procreative life, endurance in the face of death. And of course, this is the life journey of Abraham. He is continually walking into, encountering, embracing, acknowledging death. His whole life journey is a kind of acceptance that God holds the power of life. And this is what we call faith. Chapter 4 of Romans, Paul says, what is the Christian faith? Oh, our prototype is the faith of Abraham. Abraham had resurrection faith. He believed God gives life. What is the Christian faith? It's to believe that we have life through God, through Christ. And so in chapter 7, verse 7, Paul raises a question. You know, we could translate this or understand this. You know, is the law the thing? Is the law the thing that sums everything up? Is the law that thing that all things are reducible to? And of course, here is a disavowal, to state it this way, of the meaning of circumcision, of the meaning of the law. It's really to return to original sin. By giving oneself completely over to the law or over to the symbolic order, you know, if we're just thinking of the knowledge of good and evil, they thought that knowledge, that law of their own would save them. And death is denied. You won't die. You'll have life. You'll be like gods. And sexual difference is refused. The naked and ashamed condition in the first couple, you know, what are they hiding? Well, we know what they're hiding. They're hiding the genital difference that they have, which exposes the lie. You'll be like gods. Well, if you're male and female, you're dependent. You're interdependent. You're not life-producing in and of yourself. And beneath the denial of circumcision, of law, is the denial of death. You won't die. And I believe there's a refusal of the contingencies of difference, of sexual difference. Nothing is lacking as the law is sufficient. I can enact the law. And that is the law of sin and death. And so the question Paul poses, 
I believe it's impossible. It's an impossible question. Is the law sin? For those who have already presumed that they have life in the law. For them, the law is sin. That is, what is the sin principle that we've just described? To believe that you have life in the law. It is the denial of death and sexuality. And there is no questioning of an all-encompassing order of the law. The law covers it. I always think the scientific illustration of this, it may not help you very much, but this is, you know, this is the Newtonian science, is that, oh, law is everything. Today we don't follow that understanding in an Einsteinian system. But in this law-ordered reality, God is pictured as masculine, as a father primarily, as singular, as transcendent, as hidden. And he's accessed and he's hidden by the law. And this traditional masculine account of God subordinates any trace of difference. I'm describing a problem that is going to occur in the early church with the Trinity. The difference within the Godhead. The difference between the sexes becomes a problem of the difference between the Holy Spirit and the Father. So humans are the bearers of the image and if we miss this in a human gendered relation we're likely to misunderstand the Trinity. So this indifferent God is displaced you know, that's the whole idea of the Trinity, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that we're seeing in, in Romans. That it's displacing this kind of understanding of God as identified with the law, in which, as Romans 8 describes it, you know, there's an enacted realization. We often think of the Trinity as a kind of transcendence, but the picture here is, no, this is an experience. Our experience of God is Trinitarian in which the law of life and the spirit displaces the law of sin and death. You know, look at verse 811. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. You see all three persons of the Trinity there? The spirit of him, the father, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Our experience of God is Trinitarian. And the image is of the Father's Spirit raising Jesus and incorporating believers into an egalitarian, unified, Trinitarian community. This is the big discussion about the Trinity. Are the members of the Trinity equal? Or is one subordinate to the other? And of course the idea is that subordinationism is a heresy in the early church. And the Trinity incorporates difference into unity and this is the picture, you know, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. These are a form of identity that is surpassed by Christian identity. This is the New Testament. You know, this isn't just Romans, but it's the New Testament. It's written to ward off the legal idolizing tendency of the Judaizers who would make the law absolute. The Judaizers were... Christians who were Jews who felt that you had to have the beliefs of the Jews and the practices of the Jews. And so they made the law absolute and they said that to be a Christian you have to keep the law. 
And so this continued struggle with this understanding, what we might call the masculine principle of idolatry, it's even going to characterize the Christian age that is subsequent to the writing of the New Testament. And so there are abundant signs in the early church. Women, we have women apostles at the end of Romans. We have prophets, we have deaconesses, we have missionaries, we have ministers. And they were counted equal to men. And the tendency was to gradually subordinate the feminine aspect of God. And this was marked by the simultaneous denigration of women. Where God is masculine, the male is most divine-like, and women are completed by men, so that theirs is a complementary role that lacks its own substance. And so patriarchy, actually monarchy, the privileging of fathers and sons, it's premised on the male sameness flowing from this masculine order or understanding of God. And at the same time, the incorporating, you know, this thing that we've read about in Romans, the birthing, the empathic, the groaning qualities of the spirit, tended to be written over. And by written, I'm going to say literally, in iconography, by masculine images of God. And so there's an iconographic subordination of the spirit. When the Greek, East, and Latin West begin to divide, they're dividing primarily over their different understandings of the processions of the Trinity. And in the Western images, the focus is going to be on the Father and the Son with the near loss of the picturing of the Holy Spirit. And there is the simultaneous feminization of the spirit in some of these paintings and the regular replacement of the spirit by the Virgin Mary. Where do we get the veneration of Mary? I believe it's this discussion. We might think this is an elevation of the feminine. And it could be argued, oh, well, the adoration of Mary, isn't that an elevation? of the feminine. And this is reflected in the art. You know, you lose the dove and you have to hunt for the dove. You know, sometimes it's just a little tiny dove. And then suddenly the dove will disappear completely. And in place of the dove, representative of the Holy Spirit, guess who we have? We have a human image, the image of Mary. It reflects, I believe, a reduction in the status of these feminine characteristics. It's an acknowledgement of them, but it's also a reduction of them. And of course, it's also the reduction of the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, if you go back to very early imagery, what is the Holy Spirit pictured of? As fire, as flames, coming down like on Pentecost from heaven. And there is first, you know, you have the cooing, soft images of the dove. And then gradually it turns to the images of a woman, Virgin Mary. The greater the feminization, in a sense, the greater the redundancy. You don't need the spirit. Already there may be the idea, oh, to make God feminine is in some way a reduction. And so the focus is no longer on God giving birth or incorporating, indwelling as part of his saving actions, but these are relegated to Mary, to a human stand-in.
And this comes in the West. I won't go into the details of the controversy, but part of it is the focus on the atonement theory in which all of the action is between the Father and the Son. Christ's death satisfied the Father and secured forgiveness. And so you have a lot of male imagery of the Father and the Son and the gradual edging out of the Spirit. And so the dove, where it does make its appearance, you often can't find it. So you have to go dove hunting to find the Holy Spirit. And it seems then to reflect a loss of appreciation. So we have a picture, a painting. I'm not a very good painter, so I didn't try to come up with an illustration. But it's Hans Holbein in Augsburg, right before the Reformation. And in the painting, God is pictured, he has a sword, and he's sheathing the sword, but the son is pleading with him. The son is wounded, he's clearly been beaten up by the father, and he's pleading with him to put away his sword, and the Virgin Mary is there pleading with him to put away the sword. She's shown her breast and is begging, Lord, she thy sword that thou hast drawn, and see my breast where the sun has sucked. And so here the virgin has displaced the spirit, and even in this reduced role, you know, she's representative of the Holy Spirit, apparently, but all she does is plead on behalf of the son before the father. Let me give you one other illustration. This is actually from a Winchester manuscript, that pictures the same idea. Actually, you have a, a picture of the father and the son on one side of this drawing in a manuscript, on the right side, and they're trampling the devil, they're trampling Arius, who was a heretic, they're trampling Judas, and then there's the feminine side. So that you've got the men's side of the picture, and you've got the women's side of the picture. And in the women's side, there is a dejected-looking dove. They're off on the left. And there's the virgin holding a fragile baby. But they're excluded from the inner divine counsel of the father and son. And so it's clear where the real power, the real locus of salvation resides. It's among the masculine members of the Trinity. And the left-hand figures are straining to gain entry into that salvific realm of male authority. And so the idea here is the feminine exclusion from the realm of male divinity, I believe, is expressed in the art of the West. But what's being expressed there, you know, maybe it's more at a popular level, but it's there. And so I think we need to reconceive God. Maybe we just need to reconceive the way we think of God. I guess when I was a little kid, I thought of God like Santa Claus. And that's probably not getting it. Think of Romans 8. Think of the procession of the Trinity. A kind of circular, incorporating movement. In the painting by Hildegard of Bingen. She just paints three, she paints an outer silver circle, and then an inner golden circle, and then in the middle of the painting is the sun. The outer circle is the Father, the inner circle is the Holy Spirit, and then the picture is that they encompass the figure of Christ. And so that in her pictures, the central theme is, you could think of John 14, 9, 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. That is, you can look at the Son and you can get an image of the Father through the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That is an experience of God, an experience of Christ, an experience of the Holy Spirit. It's a simultaneous thing. There's a drawing by William Blake that depicts the Father humbly bending to embrace the Son and the Son is lying as if on the cross in one perspective, but in another perspective, the Father is receiving the Son into his arms as if the death of Christ is the leap into the Father's arms as a leap of joy, a gift. And so the movement is from death into the waiting arms of the Father and the enfolding wings, the Spirit, then encloses both figures here, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the work of Christ. And of course, that's what's being pictured in Romans 8, is that all three persons then are incorporating, all three persons are bringing about this new birth. Maybe a modern sketch that captures this best. You know, Romans 8 depicts a, somebody praying. And in this sketch, someone is praying, holding up their, their hands with their palms turned upward, and then a dove. The Holy Spirit is receiving the prayer. That's the picture. The Holy Spirit is interceding. And there's a channeling of the thoughts of the person of the Holy Spirit. They're mixed together into the vortex of who God is. Again, a circular movement. The downward movement is returned, balanced by an upward movement. And all of this is a circle. And so the biblical depiction of the law, you know, there's a warning of its displacement of God. And the New Testament is, in the Trinity, there is a, a displacement of a kind of phallic idolization. There's a delivery from the idolization of the law, which Paul, by the way, equates. He equates the return to Judaism as a return to idolatry. And there is a directing us to this incorporating Trinitarian conception of God. Now to state this plainly, the early church, it was pro-women. It was pro-children. It was pro-slave. It was pro-outsider. And that's why the Romans found it so despicable. You know, this is the early philosopher Celsus ridiculed Christianity as a stupid and servile religion that only attracts and attaches itself to the dregs of society. And he names the dregs, the women, the children, and the slaves. I think that's a kind of badge of honor that I'm not sure the church today can wear. As Michael Byrd, a modern theologian, has put this, it's hard to believe Christianity was considered not only a religion, but a social system of values that declared victims were the true victors. That the last will be first, the meek will inherit the earth, true power is mercy, not violence, masters should wash the feet of slaves, a husband's body belonged not to himself, but to his wife, Childlike faith was what was needed to enter the kingdom of God, and there is no hierarchy at the Lord's table. 
And so the looming question is, what do we have to do today to capture the same spirit of the first Christian generation? So the pagan or secular critics will look down on us and say, oh, it's just a miserable lot of slaves, women, and children. And so I think we see illustrated in the images, in the art, the danger of returning to this masculine, idolizing principle in which the law, the standards of culture, they dominate and they dominate the engendering of Romans 8, the picture of a new humanity conceived or being conceived, given birth by God. And so where God is conceived simply through these masculine traits of law without the spirit, the danger is we lose the spirit. We lose the birthing, indwelling, interpenetrating bond of love enacted by the spirit. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.